Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Matt. I am one of the leaders here. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, We are continuing in our series through the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to page one, and we will pick up in verse one. That's Genesis one, verse one. And as you're turning there, I'll say a quick prayer for our time in the word this morning. Jesus, we uh, thank you for uh, all that you have done for us and all that you have given us. Uh, We recognize as we come into this place that we stand, we have this new standing before you, that we stand in this grace uh, which we have access to because of you. Um, And so before we even uh, open the scriptures, um, before we sing another song, before we do anything else, Uh, We just want to uh, stop and take a deep breath and recognize that we stand in this place uh, of of grace because of you. We we are absolutely secure in your love and your grace because of who you are and what you've done for us. And and out of that, um, we actually become new people who are capable of new things. And so thank you for the standing that we have before you, uh, that it's based on you and not us, and um, that's what we celebrate week in and week out, is what you've done for us and what you're doing in us and and what you long to do through us into the world. So would you speak to us about those things now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, verse 1, says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And each day after it follows a pattern. If you glance down the page, it starts with God speaking, and God said. Then stuff happens, and then God sees and declares that it is good. Go ahead and skip down to me, if you would, to uh, verse 26, which for most of you is the top of page 2 in your Bibles. By the time we get to day six in the pattern, here's what we read. This is uh, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
after separating light and darkness, day and night, the waters above and the waters below, the water and the lands, God then fills those spaces with plants and animals and eventually, as the climax of his creative purpose, he creates human beings. But before we even talk about humans, I want us to start by recognizing two forces that are at odds with one another in the text. And uh, they may not be the forces that you would suspect. Because when I open the first pages of Scripture, uh, what I expect to find is a battle between good and evil. But what actually shows up in what's actually more pressing in the opening chapters of Genesis is order versus chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the time we get to verse 2, some scholars think we're talking about planet earth, other scholars think we're talking about the promised land, but in either case, Ha Eretz, or the land, often translated the earth, is of a certain state or quality. As we enter verse 2, we're told that the land in Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which is a brilliant phrase, difficult to translate in English, but here are some of the attempts that you will see in our English translations. Tohu vavohu is formless and empty, without form and void, barren with no form of life, formless and desolate, without order, and empty, and my personal favorite, unsightly and unfurnished. But behind uh, this idea in Hebrew it is this sense that the land is chaotic and useless. Or if you look elsewhere in scripture, tohu vavohu is often translated uninhabited and uncultivated. It is wild and waste, a state of unordered chaos. My wife and I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and my wife is very pregnant with our third, which means by the time that I get off work at 5 p.m., things are chaotic. And when I finished work on Wednesday, uh, my wife by that point was, you know, tired and sore and the boys were whining and fighting because they didn't nap and so my wife didn't get to nap and I, I kind of walk in on this scene where there's, there's toys and clothes kind of dumped and spread all over the floor and my wife is like, I'm done, like, you know, you take it from here. Uh, moments before my our three-year-old, who's mostly potty trained, decided to take the contents of his diaper and begin smearing it on the walls. And, and so I walk into this scene right after studying this stuff, and I think to myself, now this, this is tohu vavohu. <laughs> this is disordered chaos. Someone needs to do something about this. But as we enter verse two of your Bibles, there is hope for the land.
Because in the midst of tohu vavohu, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It is poised like a mother bird brooding over her nest, hovering, bringing forth new life and, and order and beauty. And as you continue to read, that's exactly what happens. God brings order into the land, light and dark, day and night, waters above and waters below, the water and the land. And it becomes well-ordered and beautiful. He fills the spaces he has created with plants and animals uh, that will function in this beautiful uh, ecological system. And over and over again, God says, it is good. And the imagery that we get is of God creating a space of ordered beauty where life and humanity can flourish. Out of tohu vavohu, God creates what we call shalom. And one of the ways of defining shalom is a state of peace in which all relationships with God, land, and others are well-ordered and flourishing. From chaos and darkness, we get light and ordered beauty in an environment where human beings can flourish. And if you lived in the ancient Near East and you were reading the book of Genesis, not only would you see God advancing shalom or ordered beauty into chaos, but you would also see God as the ultimate king. In the ancient Near East, only the king had the right to define good and evil, or right and wrong. And when he spoke, he spoke with authority, and things happened. So, you can imagine, if you were the king of Egypt, then all you have to do is speak, and the pyramids come into being. All you have to do is speak, and armies come into being, foreign nations are conquered. All you have to do is speak, and stuff happens. There is power in your words. And so God is presented in Genesis 1 as the ultimate king over the universe, the one who only needs to speak, and things happen. Happen. Psalm 33 says it this way, says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the seas into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And notice that a lot of this language actually isn't in Genesis, but it's very kingly language. And, and, and so you open the first pages of Scripture, especially in the ancient world, and you would have noticed, hey, God defines good and evil. God overcomes chaos with ordered beauty. God is king over creation, and he is taking it somewhere. He's doing something with it. He's shaping it in a specific way. And so God is the ultimate king, 
ruling over the universe, but then God does something rather curious. He creates human beings in his image, in his likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all this other stuff that he has created. If you were here last week, you know that we took an initial look at what it means to be an image bearer of God. And I argue that there's a lot involved in being an image bearer, that it's part of our identity as human beings. But no matter how you define it, one of the central purposes of these image bearers is that they were to rule and reign over creation. Psalm 8 says it this way, says, You, God, have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hand. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. The image we get of humanity is that we are royalty in a sense, a little lower than the angels. You and I have been given derivative authority from the ultimate king. God creates the heavens and the earth and then sets up human beings as sort of middle management over the system that he's created. Imagine an ancient king or an emperor who sets up uh, ambassadors or vice regents or um, regional governors to rule over his different provinces and territories. Okay, picture those people. What was their job? What were they to do with all of this borrowed authority from the king? Well, they were supposed to rule over that province in such a way that it flourished and ran smoothly, and they were to make sure that the king's will was done in that place. And so as a regional governor, not only would the region look to you for direction and for leadership, but that region would expect you to be an extension of the king acting on the king's behalf, carrying out the king's will in that place. That's what it means to be an image bearer. And if that's true, then it should not only inform our identity as human beings, but our activity as well. Image bearers, were created to reflect God's nature into creation and to act as middle management, guiding, shaping, and governing creation in such a way that it flourishes and God's will is done. In short, we were commissioned to continue God's work in the world. The scriptures open with God taking raw, untamed elements, a chaotic and useless land, a desolate and uncultivated place, and shaping it into a world that buzzes and hums and, and flourishes and comes to life. 
God takes what is tohu vavohu and he subdues it. He takes what is chaotic and useless and forms it into something useful and beautiful. And then he forms human beings with the task of carrying on his work in the world. How do we do that? Well, a huge part of ruling and cultivating creation is actually your job or your calling, what we would call vocation. It's your career. It's what you do day in and day out most days. And we'll talk more about calling and vocation next week. But before we get into the content of what we're called to do, before we get specific about what it looks like to rule and govern and shape and cultivate and subdue, I want us to pause for a moment this morning and reflect on how we are to go about it. How are we supposed to rule and cultivate and subdue? Human beings, for better or for worse, have been given this role of authority and power within the created order. But the reason that so many of us cringe when we hear the words power and authority and kingship is that human beings are really bad at it. We suck at ruling. We've forgotten how to do what God intended us to do. We have no idea how to do it. In fact, we are so bad at it that we don't want anyone to rule over anything. We just assume at this point in history that if you give a human being power, they are going to use that power for their own advantage and self-interest. We can hardly even fathom an alternative. And so we live in a culture that cannot stomach the thought of a human king. I mean, that's absurd. But we even struggle with the idea of God being king because we don't fully trust him either. We've been given such a terrible picture. All of our nerves and our baggage surrounding these concepts can be traced back to the ways in which human beings have corrupted authority. When God created human beings, he crowned them with glory and honor. He put them in this in place of incredible authority as regional governors, so to speak, over his creation. But he also gave them a choice as to how they were going to rule. And that's what you're reading about in the opening chapters. They had to choose between trusting in God and allowing him to be the true king and using their authority for the benefit of others, or they had the option to seize autonomy for themselves, throwing off God's kingship and using their authority for their own benefit. And as you read through the text, there's this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
which I've never fully understood. I think that's a very strange name for a tree. What is this knowledge? Why is that important and why couldn't they have it? That's confusing. But part of what we miss is that the king alone had the right to define good and evil. And so the tree represents a choice. Will we rule under God as vice regents and image bearers for the benefit and flourishing of everything placed under our care? Or will we seize autonomy for ourselves and rule for our own benefit? And you know how the story goes. Humanity, in a sense, rejects God's kingship, takes autonomy for themselves into their own hands, and begins using it for self-centered reasons. Humanity has this delegated power, but now we have no idea what to do with it. It's become so self-centered that we've lost sight of why God gave us power and authority to begin with. We have no idea what biblical rulership looks like. We have no concept of how to wield the power that God has given us. And this is where Jesus becomes vital to the conversation. Because in Jesus, God stepped into human history, becoming the perfect human and showing us what humanity was supposed to be like. He shows us what it means to bear God's image to the world. He shows us the way that we were supposed to live, and he challenges and redefines what we think rulership is all about. He teaches us how we ought to use our power and influence in the world. These are his words to his disciples, who bear in mind were the very center of this Jesus movement that was to shape the world. They're in the center of power, so to speak. And this is what he tells them. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise or abuse authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, or Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. And over and over again, he tells them, the greatest among you will be your servant, and the one who is least among you all is the greatest. That's what rulership was all about. That's what being an image bearer is all about. That's how we were intended to use our power and authority in the beginning. Had we kept on this track, none of us would cringe 
at the mention of, of power and authority and kingship. They would not have the negative connotations that they have had we used them in the ways that God intended. Or said another way, having a king sounds terrible until you meet Jesus and see what a true king looks like. Jesus comes to us in a broken world that has flipped itself upside down. And he says, this is what rulership was, is all about. You were never meant to turn inward. You were never meant to abuse power. You weren't supposed to make this about you and your kingdom. In all reality, it's actually about God and his kingdom. And you're the middle management. You're the vice regents. You were made to partner with God in ruling over the earth for the benefit of everything and everyone under your care. You were meant to extend the place where God's will is done and God's kingdom comes. To move the creation project forward, to take what is tohu vavohu and cultivate it and shape it and rule and reign and subdue and influence it into ordered beauty, glorifying God in the process. And so Jesus comes on the scene not to strip human beings of their power and influence, as one might expect, but rather he came to redefine and recapture humanity's true purpose and to model for us what it would look like to use your power and authority in the ways that God intended. He's already given us the power and authority to shape this world. And so now we choose, will we shape it in a way that's in line with God's heart or will we turn inward and allow that power to be corrupted and used in selfish ways? And so God has set out to redeem authority and rulership, to, to redefine it, to flip it on its head. He's come to teach us once more how to use our power and authority to creatively shape and cultivate the world as faithful vice regents. And you might as well figure this out now. Because from what I can tell, God intends for us to rule with him for all eternity. When you get to the final pages of scripture, the very last paragraphs in your Bible, what we get is a glimpse of the age to come of that future place. And the picture we get is of humanity. Everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus is fully restored in the presence of God so that they might rule with him. What will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? I can't answer all of those questions, but I know that humanity will be ruling with God. And you know how he's going to determine 
who rules over what. You know how he's going to determine who has the most power and influence and authority in that place. It's what you do right here and right now with the things that God has entrusted to you. God made you an image bearer and then he entrusted stuff into your care. He placed things under your authority. He's given you a sphere of influence, a a realm in which to govern. How are we going to rule over what God has given us? How are we going to use our power and our influence and our authority? Because no matter who you are, God has entrusted you with stuff. With friendships and money and resources and talents and gifts and time. He's entrusted some of you with children. He's entrusted some of you with students. He's entrusted some of you with patience, the people. He's entrusted some of you with friends. Every single one of you has been entrusted with a, with a vocation or a calling. More on that next week. And when we stand before God at the end of the age, he's not going to compare you to the rest of humanity. He's going to look at your life and ask, how did you govern the things that were entrusted to you? When I look at my own life, I see the ways in which God uh, has entrusted me with a place of influence and authority within this church and, and asked me to be a servant leader here to serve you i see the ways in which god has entrusted me with children and asked me to lead and love and shape and cultivate them in the way that he would i see the ways in which god has has entrusted my wife to me and, and asked me to to love her and serve her the way that he would. I see how God has entrusted to me uh, money, not a lot, but money and and time and energy and talent and, and resources and friendships and influence. And I see all of that. And then I open the pages of scripture in the very beginning and I see humanity's purpose. And I see that I have a choice to make. How am I going to shape and cultivate the things that God has placed in my sphere of influence? Will I use my authority and influence the way that the Gentiles do, lording it over others for my own benefit? Or will I use it as God intended in the beginning? 
bearing his image, reflecting his nature, managing his vineyard, cultivating his planet, stewarding his stuff as a faithful vice regent with delegated authority. Because if I'm real honest, there are plenty of days when I get angry with my kids for the sole purpose that I expect them to act older than they are. There are plenty of days when I choose productivity over properly loving my wife as Jesus intended. There are plenty of days when I don't steward my friendships or my time or my talent or my resources in a way that are actually reflective of God's kingship. And in the same breath, I recognized that I will be judged by what I do with all that God has entrusted to me. And I know that word judge stirred up a lot of emotion because I'm not talking about sin. I want you to separate these in your mind. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, your sin is done away with. You are completely secure in Christ. When I stand before God, at the end of the age, he's not going to ask me about my sin. Praise the Lord. That, that, that's done with. Because I place my faith in Jesus, that, that doesn't factor in. He's not going to ask me about my sin, but I have a hunch that he's going to ask me about my stewardship. What did you do with the things that I entrusted into your care? My... Uh, Ability to enter the kingdom of heaven is absolutely secure in Jesus. But my role in the kingdom of heaven is actually dependent on how I steward what God has entrusted to me in this life. And God says, hey, those who I can trust with a little, I can trust with a lot. Go read the parables of Jesus. It comes through time and time again. Your sin has been completely dealt with in Christ. It's nailed to the cross. There is no more condemnation. There is no more accusation. You are completely secure in him. If you follow Jesus, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the shocking truth that the scriptures convey is that not everyone will be equal in the kingdom of heaven. The roles and responsibilities and authority that you're given in that future place depends directly on how you handle what you've been given in this life. It doesn't matter if you've been entrusted with a lot or a little. It doesn't matter how many vineyards he's placed under your care or how much money he's put in your bank account. It doesn't matter how many talents you've been given. Some of you have 10, some of you have two. That doesn't matter. Go read every single one of those parables. The amount you're entrusted with does not matter to God. It's what you do with it that counts.
Do you steward what God has placed in your care in a way that is reflective of God's kingship? And as we end, before we rush into worship, what I want us to do is take a few minutes to just sit in this question. And I want us to reflect on the things that God has entrusted into our care, recognizing that we are image bearers of God, created to exercise derivative authority from the king. And at the end of the age, God won't have anything to say about your sin, but he'll have some questions about your stewardship. What did you do with the things that I lovingly entrusted to you? Let's pray. Jesus, as we open up the first pages of Scripture, uh, what we see is that human beings were created with a purpose. And though uh, we cringe at the reality of it, um, you gave human beings an incredible amount of power and influence and authority within the created order. And though some of us might sit in this room and look right to left and say, well, they have more power or more authority or more influence or more money, the reality is that you've entrusted every single person in this room with the things which they are to govern and steward and use, their gifts, their talents, their money, their time, their resource, all of it. You've done this shocking thing of creating beings, putting us in a place of power and influence, and then saying, you decide what to do. You will decide whether you act as a faithful vice regent under the true king, or or whether you seize autonomy and and turn inward and, and, and rule for your own gain. And so Jesus, in a world full of bad examples, We look to you. We fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, trusting that the one who's begun a good work in us will finish that work, that this new creation stuff that you're doing in us includes the redefinition of what it looks like to rule and reign. God, would we be advanced signs of, of the kingdom that is coming? Would you teach us what it looks like to rule and reign and exercise authority in a way that doesn't cause the world to cringe. In a world that's actually reflective of your love and your grace and your sacrifice and your peace and your patience and your kindness and your joy, all of it. So Holy Spirit, um, you're already here, you're already at work, uh, but we just invite you into this place now And uh, we ask that you would speak. Over these next two, three, four minutes, uh, we just want to sit. Uh, For some of you, uh, it might help to have the scriptures open or have a journal open or to just open your hands and just be in a posture of receiving. But Jesus, we want to hear you in this place. 
We want to be guided by you. Would you illuminate for us now the ways in which uh, many of us are governing and stewarding what you've entrusted to us in a way that glorifies you, that puts your love on display, that's in line with your heart. And in the same breath, Jesus, we count it as a gift when you highlight the ways in which we're not governing and stewarding what you've given us in a way that's in line with your heart. We actually see that conviction as a gift to be received. And we receive it with open arms in this place because we're secure in your love and we look forward to the day when we will stand before you and give an account, knowing that our sin has been fully dealt with, but you actually want to know, you actually want to see that we've used our time, talent, and resources in a way that's reflective of you. May we stand before you at the end of the age and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You bore my image in the ways that I asked you to. You stewarded and governed and ruled and reigned and influenced the sphere that I've given you in a way that was reflective and faithful of my kingship. Come and speak to us now, Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.